left, find the door. There are over 4 million working aged blind and visually impaired people in the United States. And over 2 million of these people are unemployed. This is a staggering statistic, but many people defy these odds and are happily and gainfully employed, and we wish to share their stories with the world. Hello and welcome to Vision Toward Success, the podcast that highlights stories of career development and lived experience. This podcast is brought to you by the Polis Center for Social and Economic Development. In our program, we feature employment success stories from visually impaired individuals for people with disabilities and their allies, in hopes of showing just how smart, hardworking, and capable this diverse community is. Hello, and welcome to Vision Towards Success. My name is David Gonzalez, and with us, we have Barbara Black, a retired teacher and supervisor. Now, we will hear from our interviewer, Shaheem Sutherland, and our guest, Barbara Black. Good afternoon, Barbara. My name is Shaheem Sutherland. I am a intern with the Tradeswind program, and today I will be uh, interviewing you. It's nice to meet you. Start off with um, introducing yourself and who you are and a little about your background. My name is Barbara Black. I am... 71 years old. I've worked in the early childhood world um, for very many years, um, maybe, I don't know, more than 45. And uh, I live in Northampton, Massachusetts. Um, and I have, um, I have retinitis pigmentosa, and I haven't had any usable vision for uh, the last... 20 to 25 years um and before that i um you know i had central vision that was getting progressively smaller and i um travel with a guide dog now when you lost your vision was this before you retired or after i was way before until i was 28 i just always thought i was a clutch you know, that I was very clumsy, that I was a space cadet, because I didn't have any peripheral vision, but I didn't know that. I just, again, thought I was kind of spacey, because that's what people would tease me about. And um, and then I found out that I had that I had no peripheral vision, and um, that was kind of surprising. And um, over the, you know, the next 20 years, I'd say my my visual field got smaller till it was kind of disappeared. And in retrospect, I always had a vision impairment, but again, I didn't know it. I just thought that was how the world is. Yeah, um, I can relate to that. Me as a child, um, I was never able to catch a ball flying in the sky, and I was always made fun of by my friends. But at the time, I didn't know that I was legally blind. You know, I had no clue. I thought I just sucked at catching. <laughs> and, you know, later on, I found out, hey, um, you know, this is why I'm legally blind. So, yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. 
had exactly that experience. I used to, I would, I stopped playing catch fairly early on because I would be scanning this, I would be, you know, like looking across the sky to find the ball and people would tease me. And I didn't know that most people had a big vision of the sky and they could, you know, of, of what was coming. I just thought, well, how would you find the ball if you don't look for it? My mother would always say to me, you know, don't look down like it's not polite. Um, don't look at the ground. And I would think, well, how do you know that there's going to be like, you know, a hole or a sewer or a curb? And I just assumed that other people were sneaking looks instead of looking all the time. I had no clue that by looking straight ahead, people with typical vision could see the ground. When it comes to your early ch working with um, children, you know, in their early ages, is that something you've always wanted to do or was it something decided, you know, later on? I didn't always want to do it. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had sort of no, I had no clue. And I went to college and I, um, you know, I, I don't know, I, you know, I took course not knowing what I wanted to do. I majored in sociology in college because it was kind of, you know, I don't know, something that made sense. And then I started taking education courses only because, basically only because my mother pushed me into it. And I grew up at a time when um, really the options for women were you would be a teacher, a nurse, a secretary, or a social worker. That was it. And, you know, my mother kept saying to my sister and to me, well, you have to take education courses you have to get licensed as a teacher. And if you don't do it, that's okay, but you will always have it to fall back on. So I took education courses and so I had a, had a, a teaching license, but did not intend to use it. And then I was you know, a little bit at loose ends and I was looking for a job and it was in the early 1970s. And there were, um, it was when childcare programs were just becoming much more widespread. There was public funding, and it was a place I could get a job. So I thought, well, all right. I had a friend who was working in a child care center. She, you know, told me how to, how to go about it. And I um, figured, all right, I'll do this for a while, and then I'll, you know, then I'll do something else. I don't know. In those days, people, I grew up in New York City. And at that time, if you lived in New York, you, in New York City, you probably thought you'd move to the West Coast. And if you moved on the West Coast, you probably thought you'd move to New York City. You know, it sort of was just how it is. So I thought, all right, I'll work in daycare for a while, and then I'll save a little bit of money, and I'll move to the West Coast. Well, it turned out I actually really liked working in daycare. And I, I, after a few months, I thought, oh, I like this. And um, I think I'm going to keep doing this. And so I did. I never did move to the West Coast, um, and I ended up, uh, while I was working, getting a master's in early childhood education. And I worked in a daycare, this daycare center um, in a low-income neighborhood, um, for about six years, and then I moved 
to Massachusetts. I was living with a friend who really wanted to leave New York, and we moved to Northampton, and I got a job, again, in a low-income daycare center, and it was just, it was, it ended up being my home for 18 years. It was, um, I loved the kids I worked with, the families I worked with, and the grown-ups that I worked with, the people, the other teachers. And I actually became, after um, about a year and a half there, I became the director of what was then a, a two-classroom two childcare program. And then the program grew and changed over time, and I grew and changed over time too. And we added classrooms, and we worked with some home providers, and we started having infants and toddlers, where before we had only had preschoolers. So I learned a lot, and I, um, I kind of learned on the job. The first year that I was the program director, I had to submit proposals for, um, for funding to the state. It was sort of traumatic. I was like, I'll do this, and then as soon as I'm finished, I'm quitting, because I'm never going to do this again. Well, I finished, I submitted the proposals, we got the funding, and I didn't quit, and I ended up realizing over time that I loved doing those that work, and that I liked actually being um, an, you know, an administrator. I liked supervising the the teachers. I liked working with families and being the connecting point. And I liked, surprise of surprises, I liked doing the budget, which had terrified me. So, um, yeah, so that's sort of how I got there. And then after being at that center for 18 years, um, just about at the same time as I was losing any functional vision, I decided I had to find out if I could ever work anywhere else. It was a kind of a crazy thing to do, but it was, I ended up um, moving to the public schools um, where I became the early childhood coordinator. And I was still working with childcare programs, but I was also working with um, public school teachers. And, um, and again, and I was there for 21 years and retired three years ago. And again, I learned a lot. My job changed. I mean, I think one of the things I found out is that you could be in the same job for a very long time, but it doesn't stay the same. It changes. And, you know, I changed with it. And, you know, things, we, we, we changed what we were doing. Programs changed. And, um, and there were new things that we were doing, and, and there were things we stopped doing, and there were things we started doing differently, and there were things, you know, so that it, it, was, um, it was always changing. But I hadn't, you know, when I was, if you had asked me when I was 21 if I thought that I was going to be a teacher or an educator for my life and for a career, I would have thought it was kind of funny. And in retrospect, that is what happened, and I uh, have loved it. And I'm still connected to my field. I still do advocacy work and some consulting. So that was a long answer to your question. It was a great answer. It, it seems like you have an extremely long career in um, early childhood, working with 
children who are in their early years, whether it be preschool or, you know, infants. Now, as the years went on and your vision ended up deteriorating, were there any assistive technologies that you used throughout your time working with children? Well, it became, my job really became less working directly with children and more administering programs. And I certainly, um, I started using, uh, I guess it was Vocalize at the time. It was screen reading software. And I still had a little bit of vision when I started using it, but not a lot. And I, I just had trouble finding the cursor. It was, so that was why I needed the screen reading software. And when I started using it, I was still reading the screen at the same time as I was listening. And then over time, I, you know, I couldn't see much. And I just started to depend on listening, which was a good transition. And um, Vocalize was uh, in DOS, which was, which is old computers. And um, at some point, it became clear that I needed to switch over to Windows and to JAWS. And so I did that. Um, I actually went to the Carroll Center um, for, I don't know, a few days for computer training. And I, um, and then I had somebody uh, through the commission follow up with me back in my office. Um, and I um, adapted. And I've been using JAWS ever since then, whenever that was. And I think that must have been around, I don't know. 1998, maybe? I did also, actually, I'm trying to remember when I had this. I had, again, this is ancient technology that one doesn't need anymore because there's much better things, but I, I used a Type and Speak, which was a portable, um, you know, pretty lightweight keyboard thing that, note-taker, I guess that's what it was. It was a note-taker. Um, so I used that. Um, for meetings and, um, you know, when I want to take notes in meetings, because it was before I had a laptop. It was when I had just a desktop desktop computer. And um, so I used those. And I, um, before that, when I still had some usable vision, uh, maybe in 1992 or 93, I got a guide, I got my first guide dog. And um, I've since had several. I had um, the first one for about um, almost 12 years, I think, and the second one for 11, almost 11 years. Um, and then I had one that I had for nine months, and it was really not a good match for me. It was I should probably not even have kept him that long, but I kept thinking I could work it out. Um, and now I have a, a guide from the seeing eye that I've had for eight years, and she's great. Um, in terms of, you know, adapting, when I was working with kids, I don't think I used any particular tools so much as um, just, you know, really trying to be aware of what was happening around me. And, um, I mean, certainly I you know, even when I was an administrator, I spent time in classrooms. Once I didn't have any vision, I wouldn't be in a classroom alone. It just, with with older kids, I think it would be fine. But with 
two, three, and four-year-olds, it just felt like you needed, especially because I was working with kids who had, often who had disabilities and might need specific, um, you know, I don't know, supports. So I, you know, I would, I would, I would sometimes go in and be another adult in the classroom, and I could be helpful. I could be at a table with a bunch of kids. I could. Um, I often would joke that I, I, when I came in, it was like the dog center. You know, in in preschool classrooms, you have the block area, you have the art area, you have the dramatic play area, and I was the dog area. I could have like eight kids around the dog, and we could be very entertained. Um, I could do circle times. I could run meetings, but I. You know, I didn't do, I stopped doing, like, diaper change and um, things that required um, more hands-on where I would I be getting it right. You know, but I would, you know, I spent time on playgrounds with kids and, you know, but mostly it was, I wasn't the only one there, so that there was somebody who had eyes on supervision skills as well. Um, and again, I think with older kids, that would be less of an issue because... You know, they'll. I mean, kids that worked with that I worked with when I didn't have any vision knew that, and I had questions like, "Well, why don't you just get some new eyes?" And thought I said I would say that's a good idea, but I don't. There's not a way to do that right now. Um, you know, and kids. I also um, early on, I just remember this one kid who took it in that the dog was helping me see. Um, you know, because I would say that, you know, the dog is helping me see where I'm going and those sorts of things. And one day he's showing me his picture and he says, here, take a look at my picture. And I said, well, could you tell me about it? Could you tell me what you did? And he said, looks at the, the dog, I'm assuming he was looking at the dog and says, can't he see it for you? As if, you know, we had one brain. And if the dog was looking at the picture, I would know what it looked like. So that was, you know, just an interesting uh, little kid thing. Um, and so anyway, so I'm a pretty, uh, well, relatively functional JAWS user. I do a lot of spreadsheets, um, Word documents, web browsing, um, and, you know, some things work better than others. Um, that's really been my biggest tool when I was working still. That was, that was the main tool I used. No, I was going to say, um, I, I'm not too familiar with a lot of the assistive technologies out there. I pretty much only know about JAWS and um, ZoomText, I believe. But it was really interesting to hear about the assistive technology you guys had back then in the um, 80s and 90s. So, yeah, it was really cool to hear. I, I'm really curious, you know, at, at first it started off with you you know, maybe bumping into things or knocking things over and you didn't know that you had peripheral uh, vision issues. And over the years, it progressively got worse and worse and you start to realize, you know, um, I'm going blind. I I'm really curious as to how that affected you mentally. Well, it was a mix, I have to say. It was, um, and the reason I went and got my vision checked was that I was planning to move out of New York and, you know, I was a subway rider, I was a bus rider, I was, you know, I got, could get any place. But I did drive and I was always uncomfortable driving. I, I it was like, but I, I had a driver's license and I had driven, in, you know, when I was in my early 20s and I 
thought, well, if I'm going to move to a more rural area, I need to just deal with this. I assumed I had a psychological block, and that was why I was always walking into things. And I have to deal with this psychological block and, you know, so that I will feel more comfortable moving around in the world and driving. And so I decided I would get my eyes checked just so that I could rule, you know, rule that out. And then I would, then I would deal with my psychological block. Well, I went to get my eyes checked and um, had a visual field test. And the technician kept trying different machines and trying different things. And clearly she was getting very anxious. And so I was getting anxious because she was anxious. And then finally she finishes and she says, well, you'll have to see the doctor tomorrow. And I said, well, is there something wrong? And she said, well, you'll see the doctor. I can't tell you, which is not a very reassuring thing to hear, you know. And so I was a little unnerved and I was and what was funny was I did it I was on my way to work because I was working late that day and I made an appointment early in the morning and at this you know eye and ear New York eye and ear and uh, hospital which is sort of like mass eye and ear and it was near where I worked so I um there I am feeling like, oh, something is wrong, but I don't know what and what's going on here. And now I have to go to work and I have to be functional in my classroom. I have to be with kids. So I, you know, pulled myself together and I went and I was with kids and I thought, okay, fine. And the next day I went back to see the doctor and I brought a friend with me because I was kind of like, this is weird. I don't know what's going on here. And I see this doctor who says, well, you're legally blind. And I said, well, that's ridiculous. I can see fine because I had good central vision. What, what kind of, you know, sort of like, what kind of stupid thing is that to say to me? And he said, well, you know, he tells me I have retinitis pigmentosa and that, you know, my field is whatever, five degrees. And, and that's within what the realm of legal blindness and, and you should go, you know, you could go see a retinal specialist. I thought, oh, well, that's pretty weird, and that's crazy, and that's horrifying, and being told I was legally blind, that was I was horrified, and that I would probably lose the rest of my vision, and I, I was, you know, ooh. But at the same time, so over, so that was my initial response, but over the next few months, it sort of became a relief, because I felt like I had spent my life feeling like there was something wrong with me that was you know, my, with my personality, that I was a space cadet and that I, you know, somebody was handing me something and I couldn't see where it was, they would say, boy, are you spacey? And um, it was just not good. <laughs> so I, um, so I would say that on the one hand, it was horrifying. On the other hand, it was a relief because I felt better about myself and that I had been actually compensating really well and that I had figured out ways to be in the world um, without knowing I had a disability, but managing it. And, um, you know, I always read fairly slowly, but I didn't know that was because I had a vision problem. I just figured I was a slow reader, you know, that I read one word at a time. But in fact, it was because I could only see one word at a time.
So it, it just explained a lot. It explained why I couldn't catch a ball, why even I couldn't even figure out where the volleyball was when those are big. Um, you know, why I bumped into people on the street, why I was always tripping on the little short chairs in my preschool classroom that I was teaching in. Um, you know, why I sometimes, you know, just, just it, it just explained a lot. And that was actually really helpful. Although I was still somewhat in denial. In the first few years, if I ever saw anybody with a white cane, I would cross the street. It was like, oh, I'm not going to be, I don't want to be near that person. I'm, you know, it's like it might be catching, even though I'd already caught it. Um, you know, so that was, you know, it took me a while to get past that. And I was really uncomfortable with the idea of needing a cane. Um, somebody from the commission had suggested that I do mobility training while I still had usable vision. And I said, all right, fine. And I met with this mobility trainer and I was so nasty to him because I was, I so much didn't want to do it that after one session I said, I don't think we, I'm ready for this. And I didn't do it for another few, several years. Um, you know, probably, I don't know how many years, maybe four, four or five years. I didn't, I didn't try again. And, you know, because I just couldn't accept that. Um, but then once I, it became clear that I was going to need to do it, then it was easier to do it. And, and then I wasn't nasty to the mobility trainer. <laughs> and I, I don't know if any of this makes sense to you. Oh, trust me, it makes a whole lot of sense. I completely understand why you felt the way you felt. And it was really interesting to hear you mention a mental blockage because for a long time in my younger years from the ages probably, in my elementary days, um, I had a pair of glasses that never did anything to improve my vision at all. And I would always tell the teachers and the TVIs like, hey, you know, these aren't helping me a single bit. And for a long time, I thought, you know, I was crazy. I was like, you know, I'm not blind. These glasses don't even help me. And, you know, later on in life, and once I entered high school, I went to a different eye doctor and got a new pair of glasses. And, you know, these changed my vision a lot. And I was like, wow, I am blind. <laughs> and, you know, it, it just, it was, I just thought it was a mental thing for me for a really long time. And having seen how how much clearer things were with the glasses on, the new glasses, I, I literally started crying because, you know, one, it was, it was life-changing. And two, I was like, I was coming to the realization that, yeah, I am, I am blind, you know? I have to live with this now. It, it you know, much as the idea of not having any vision at all was kind of frightening. Um, it was also freeing to, to know that I was functioning. Funk plus one, oh. four, one, three, six, nine, five, four, four, nine, eight. And my is ringing and I'm going to just try to ignore it here. Message button. Give me a second. Someone, Sorry. One of four bars. Signal strength. Status bar. Ah. It, it will stop ringing eventually. Status bar item. Okay. Okay. There we go. Um, sorry about that. 
Um, if my other phone rings, though, I may answer it because I'm waiting for a call from a plumber. Um, anyway, so, um, yeah, it is, it's a, it's a funny thing. And I also think, I mean, and I don't know if your vision is, is changing, you know, and if it, it changed from, you know, more to less, but I have to say for me, you know, sort of the gradual change made it pretty manageable that, you know, that I sort of grew to rely on what usable vision I had less and less, and it was getting less and less. So it was a good thing. I was, you know, figuring out other ways of doing things. Um, a funny thing, um, I, I have a daughter who's, um, who's an adult, who's 36, and, um, and she um, doesn't have, uh, she, I mean, she has, she's, um, she wears glasses, she's got terrible, she's very, very nearsighted and has an astigmatism, but is not legally blind and doesn't have the same condition that I have. And, um, but when she was very little, um, the way, you know, when, if I drop something and I have to pick it up, I feel around on the floor, you know, I'll pat the floor all around me to find it. Well, when she was about two, I realized that she would do the same thing, even though she could see, she had no idea why I was doing that. And she would, if she, if she dropped something, she would pat the floor, even though she could see perfectly well where it was, to find it. And it was just a funny thing because it was, you know, it was what I did. It was how I found things. And she just thought that was how you, how you pick something up. You pat the floor first, then you pick it up. Back to what you said about, you know, your vision, your vision gra gradually going away. I never really thought about how that'll make it easier. And now it makes a lot of sense because, you know, you can, it's gradually going away and you know, you know, my vision is going to be totally gone. So now I can, you know, prepare. And now I know this reality and now I can practice, you know, mobile transportations and things like that and skills and using my hearing and touching and maybe get a cane and practice using jaws and things like that instead of you know one day waking up and going from perfect vision to it being completely gone i mean i think you know we sort of gradually adjust to things but and and it does happen to people and it you know either they have accidents or you know things happen that do that and that to me would be is so much harder and i mean this way you know I was used to like figuring out where I was by, you know, I don't know, different, different ways. And, you know, by touching things and, um, you know, feeling things with my feet that I didn't realize I was feeling with my feet. Um, you know, it just, you sort of do it in terms of my work. I feel like, I mean, so I ended up being, um, an administrator in the public schools and I was part of the you know, school leadership team and people were very supportive. I felt like, you know, it was tricky. People would sometimes send me things that I couldn't read. And I would say, I can't read that, you know, that it was not in a format I could read it. And people got really good at figuring out how to make things readable for me to send me the, the note, the things they were going to hand out beforehand. Um, you know, so those sorts of things, I, I, you know, I felt like people were really great about, and I, you know, I, if I had to go to meetings, 
you know, would just figure out who else is going to that meeting and arrange to get there, to go there with them. And, um, you know, or if nobody was going, I took cabs or I scheduled van rides, which are a little tricky just because you never know exactly when it's going to be. But, you know, you manage it. Um, and I figured out, I mean, they said we now have work, morphed back into my work life. Um, I often had meetings in Worcester or Boston. And now I could, now it would be much easier because now one could do it on Zoom. And I would sometimes do them on speakerphone, but it wasn't very effective. And so I just would figure out, I would find out who else is going to that meeting from Western Mass, even if they don't live near me that I would schedule a van ride to go to Springfield and meet them in Springfield um, and get a ride with them. And then I would figure out a way to get back from Springfield when we came back from Worcester or wherever it was. Um, so, you know, you just you sort of become, and I'm sure you already are, pretty resourceful. Um, a funny thing, when I worked um, in the daycare center I worked in, I knew where everybody lived like all the families, all the staff in the building, so that if I was trying to figure out how I was going to get home, I knew who, who it was okay to ask because I knew they were going to be driving in my direction. And I, my way of, um, I mean, I'm pretty good at asking people for help, but I also always say when I ask, would I ask someone for a ride, I would always say, I'm going to, and they, if they, I would say, you can, it's fine to say no. And I'm going to ask you again until, unless you tell me not to. You know, it's like, it's fine. You can tell me never to ask again. You can tell me no, or you can say yes, whatever works. And um, I do the same thing now. I um, I'm, I row on the Connecticut River. I'm, I'm like a nutcase rower. I row three or four times a week on the river. And... Um, the boathouse I row from is, it's about a 20, 25 minute ride from my house. And, um, it's, I can't, I, the only way I can get there is in a car, either in, you know, with somebody or I can schedule a van ride, uh, you know, with paratransit. Um, and, you know, I've worked it out so that I know where, I know everyone that lives in my direction and, I ask them if they can give me rides and I say, I'm going to ask you until you tell me you don't want me to ask you. And that's worked pretty well. Um, you know, cause I, I'm fine to say no. I always t tell people fine to say no, I will figure it out. Don't worry. So, and I'm sure you've worked out some of those, those ways of getting around as well. Yeah. I think it's really important to use the resources at your disposal and when it comes to the no thing, I find it that a lot of people don't like to say no in fear that they're going to hurt your feelings. But no is a very powerful word. You know, a, a normal person won't take offense if you don't want to do something. And it's completely understandable, you know, if they have something to do or, you know, if they don't have gas or I don't know, well, whatever the reason. And, you know, maybe they don't even need a reason to say no. It's perfectly fine. But yeah, I think it's really important to use your resources at hand. You know, MCB is really helpful with things like that and assisting in mobility training and yeah, other things.
Yeah, yeah, no, and it's it's important to let people know that it's fine with you if they say no, that you won't be offended. <laughs> you know, that it's yeah. you know, you know, people don't want to let you down, like you said, or they don't want to make you feel bad or offend you. And so, you know, I, I think putting out there right at the beginning that it's okay with me if you say no, I don't mind. For my next question here, it has to do with you as someone who's lived a long life and is experienced with using their resources and getting around as a visually impaired slash blind visual. What tips do you have for our listeners or those out there who are um, visually impaired? I guess to try not to get too mad at yourself. And and I think of that as when, I mean, I still, I walk into walls. I bump, I, I tend to lead with my head and I'm, I often have lumps on my head. Um, and I, I, you know, I just have to forgive myself for that and not get mad that I, you know, and not just forgive myself, but also just, it's like, it's what it is and, and not to, to try not to feel really frustrated by it. Um, and I think, yeah, so to just sort of be easy on yourself and on the people around you. Um, I live alone and have, I mean, I, I lived, I, I was a single parent, um, but I always had people around. I always have asked, you know, I'm, I'm not shy about asking for help. But as I said, I'm also not shy about saying, don't say yes if you can't, if it doesn't feel right. Um, so I, I think just, and, and as you said, people really do want to help. They really want to be helpful. And so I, you know, I will ask um, people, someone to pick something up at the grocery store for me when they're going. Um, I will, if I'm having trouble with a website and with, let's say, ordering something online, I'll ask somebody to do it for me. Or I'll ask them to do it with me. Or I'll call it in instead of doing the doing it on the web. And I keep in mind, I am I didn't grow up with a computer or a smartphone. And so I'm not as tech you know, tech savvy as um people who are growing up now, as and as young people now, young adults who are, you know, I think that devices are extensions of your bodies. And I really struggle with the with the iPhone. I can use it, but I'm not not good at it at all and so I often ask for help and so you know not being shy about that but not also you know recognizing that sometimes you just have to figure it out and another this is a funny thing but um a lot of times people say oh you want to get together for a you know a cup of coffee and you know we can meet in a cafe and and get together and I'll say I'd love to get together, but could we do errands instead? Or could we do grocery shopping instead of getting a coffee? Because you can still have a conversation. We can still have a visit. So a lot of the times um, I have some friends who the way I visit with them is by going grocery shopping or by doing funny errands that are hard for me to get to. Um, you know, and we'll talk in the car and we'll talk when we're pushing the shopping cart and 
you also learn about other foods that other people eat and they learn about what you eat and you, you try it and it's like, oh, I didn't know I would like that. Um, so I, I think just being, um, being able to be open about those things, about what you need and, and recognizing that it's, you know, it, other people have to go grocery shopping too. So, you know, go grocery shopping together. Um, and so things like that. I mean, I think something that sometimes is hard for me is social settings, <clears throat> figuring out who's there, um, when people are people talking to each other and I'm not, um, who who am I talking to? You know, so I think I'm, and that's something that maybe that would was an issue even when I had vision. I'm not sure, but it you know it can be tricky. Or people will say, "Oh, you want to sit down?" and they'll put you at a in a chair or at a table that no, and no one else is sitting. And I'm thinking, well, I don't want to be at this table by myself. I'm only going to, so now I, if someone says, oh, do you want to sit at the table? I'll say, well, if other people are sitting at the table, sure. But otherwise, no, <laughs> it's not like I can't stand up and be in a crowd. Um, so I think that's, you know, just figuring out how to negotiate social situations can sometimes be tricky. Um, but again, I don't know how much of that's just me and my personality and how much of that is, I'm not exactly sure what's going on cause I can't see it. Um, I also, as, as I'm old, as I've gotten older, um, like a lot of people who get, when they get older, we lose our hearing. And so my hearing is, is pretty bad. I have hearing aids. Um, and that makes a huge difference, but it is, um, you know, it's sort of a a little bit of a double whammy and um you know so so that I may be asking people what what did you say <laughs> in addition to like where where are you um you know so it's just it's it's a it's a tricky thing that happens sometimes when you get old now I have one final question here and then I'll hand it over to the other people in the call with us to see if they have any further questions for you this is a question that I like to ask every guest that we have on is if you can go back in time and give yourself advice, what would you say? I guess I would say you never know exactly where you're going to land, so just don't worry too much about it. Um, you know, I would never have expected that I would um, have this career that I've had and be so passionate about it and become an outspoken advocate who does stuff on the state level. And um, so you just don't know. So you have to just take things. I don't know. I guess I would say I sh should be open to what comes. That is some great advice because that is something that I'm struggling with heading into college now is I'm not sure what I want to do. And, you know, that's some advice that I hear from other people as well as, you know, don't worry too much about it. it you know, You'll figure it out as you go on throughout life. You know, there's a lot of people who, uh, like yourself, who go down one path and, you know, ending up changing directions and heading down another. And I'm going to just add to what you just said. My daughter, who, as I said, is 36, had no clue what she was going to do when she graduated from college. And she knew she'd do something. And it would be something that, you know, had to do with some kind of social justice kind of support 
work for people and you know whether it was union organizing or something anyway she ended up she lived in south america for a while and often when you live in another country what do you do you teach english so she taught english so she came back to the us and she got a job that she figured she'd do for a little while and see what you know what she'd do after that that was teaching english to immigrants and she ended up having the same experience i had like in 6 months she realized she loved it and she has since done many jobs that are related to that got a, a, a degree in it and i heard her say recently to someone well i love my job you know i'd say 90% of it are the things that i love doing and i thought wow <laughs> that's amazing because if you'd asked her when she was in college she had so many majors she majored in or she minored in spanish and environmental studies and art and anthropology and she majored in latin latin american studies and you know so she was like all of these things she didn't know man it ended up working out so so thanks for asking yeah no problem at all thank you for answering all my questions to the best of your ability this was definitely one of my favorite interviews that we've done and uh, thank you for taking time out of your day to come out and meet with us today very fun for me and i fine with whatever it is you decide to do and it might change it won't, won't always be the same thing hello and welcome back to vision towards success my name is david gonzales and with us we have barbara black a retired teacher and supervisor Barbara discusses the struggles she has faced over time from her vision loss, such as previous positions she has taken on. After Barbara's interview, we had a chance to discuss her early career path, from being a daycare director to working in the educational system. Even though Barbara worked in this field for over 40 years and found this career to be extremely rewarding, She experienced discrimination and access challenges centered around her disability that left her questioning whether she could continue in this field. Okay. Well, I have to say when I was um when I was leaving the daycare job, the director job that I had had for 17, 18 years and um and I <laughs> The reason I mean it's sort of was crazy I'm going to just I'm going to digress but I will answer the question. Um a friend of mine um who was also in the field um asked me if I would meet with her to give her information on what was then called Title 20 which was subsidized childcare because she was applying for the childcare director job at UMass and I said sure I'd be happy to do that and I'll meet with you because I know a lot about subsidized childcare and I hung up the phone and I burst into tears and I realized that I was had you know I was sort of in my late 40s and I was feeling like am I going to be here for the rest of my life is this the only job I can do because I know it and uh, and why didn't I apply for the UMass job and um And so that made me realize that I needed to start looking and thinking about what else I could do. And um so I did. I started looking and and it turned out that there was this job that I 
knew the person who did it and she was and I worked with her on a lot of issues and she was applying for a principal's job and I thought all right well I'll do that I'll apply and I applied and I was offered the job and I um, told someone who was a director of another program in my agency and I told him I was leaving and that you know that I was um, what I was going to be doing and he said well they hired you and I said well why wouldn't they hire me and he said well because you're blind and I thought I mean I felt like punching him this is somebody who I had a you know parallel job to him I was doing it well um, I was known region locally regionally and statewide as an advocate and here is this peer saying well you're blind what how could you do it how could you do that and I'm thinking Ugh. anyway I didn't punch him even though I really kind of felt like punching him um, and because I think the people that interviewed me and that hired me because I had done a lot of work with them they didn't have any qualms but um, and when I was interviewed by the superintendent I said, I know you can't ask me anything about my, you know, my vision, but I will need some accommodations. And he said, you know, I said, I know you can't ask me anything about my disability, but I will need some accommodations. So let's just put that out there now. And he was, he was great about it. He was actually really good. Um, so, I mean, for me, being able to say, um, I'm going to need some accommodations um, was really important. Um, I think, you know, I mean, one of, I did actually, the last two years before I retired, I had a lot of problems with my supervisor. And she, um, and I had never had a problem with a supervisor for 40 years. <laughs> and I had worked with a lot of different people, because I, I worked in large agencies, so even though I was a director, I had somebody over me. I wasn't the, the last word, which I was always really glad of. Um, and I had always gotten along, and I had uh, never had a problem. And all of a sudden, I'm having a problem with this woman who is questioning everything I'm doing. And I had been working with her for a few years, but things were not going well in, in the preschool program that year. And so she was very unhappy with me. And she started criticizing everything I did. And she started asking me to do things that were not very accessible. And then would comment on how slow they were. I was at doing them. And um, it was really demoralizing. It was, I mean, I was in tears all the time. I was a mess. And I was actually, I was ready to quit. And I thought, well, I'll just retire now. I was I hadn't really planned to retire then. I, it was, you know, a few years before I planned to retire. And I thought, if this goes on, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm just gonna leave because I can't do it. And and I you know, and I talked with people about it and people you know, and it was sort of uh, you know, should I file with MCAD? I mean she would say things it, it just was it was it was not good and I was ready to you know file a discrimination case and um, 
what fi- I finally, I had not, I was, I was a member of the teachers union and, um, of the administrators unit of the teachers union. And I hadn't spoken to anyone in the union because I just kept feeling like I can deal with this myself. I can take care of it. And finally I got in touch with the union and I met with the union, the you know president of the local and she said, you know, it's not okay. We're going to ask her, you know, she has to agree to, you know, the accommodations you need and she has to, you know, not ask you to do things that are inappropriate and she has to, you know, just back off. And um, so I did that. And she, I had the union president sit in every supervision meeting I had for a while because I was just, I just felt so um, attacked. And, you know, some of it didn't have to do with my vision. Some of it had to do with she didn't like the way I did things. And because I, um, uh, yeah, she just didn't like the way I did things. And that I allowed myself to be vulnerable or showed that I was vulnerable with te- with people that I was supervising. And I don't think that's the end of the world. I don't, I think it's okay to show your weaknesses. Um, that's who I am. And, um, and she was somebody who would never let someone see her weaknesses, who she supervised. No one should ever know that she had questions about anything. And that definitely wasn't who I am. And so, you know, so some of it had to do with asking me to do things that were inappropriate, and some of it had to do with, um, with who I, who I, you know, how I, how I supervise, how I operate in the world. Um, Anyway, so she then realized that she was treading on very thin ice, and she said, okay, I'm going to write, I want you to write up what accommodations you need, and then we'll have a formal agreement. And, you know, and she ran it by the lawyer, and, um, and it was fine. I mean, and the next year was fine. She totally backed off because she realized she was, uh, it was not a good idea. And, um, and, and I decided I would stay and, um, you know, tough it out and, and then I would retire maybe a a year later, um, because I would be ready. As Barbara mentions, being questioned about her disability was an emotional struggle and experiencing discrimination almost caused her to walk away from the job. Instead of retiring early, Barbara took a stand and advocated for herself by seeking help from her union. As a result, she was able to get the accommodations she needed and continued working. Unfortunately, discrimination can be a common experience for people with disabilities throughout their career. To receive the accommodations we need, it's important to speak up and advocate for ourselves. The journey of advocating for herself made Barbara realize and appreciate the importance of community support. She admits that while she did not work in the blindness field, this experience made her realize how important it is to be supportive by others who have similar experiences in life. Barbara points out that the work of the blind community to promote accessibility creates an impact for career-driven 
blind and visually impaired people in any career. In addition to being part of a community, having role models is an important part of discovering your own identity. As an educator, Barbara believes that the need for role models starts at an early age. I mean, I know that a lot of people who are who are blind or uh, work in the blindness world, and those of us that don't, it's it, we're more distant from it. And um, and I feel like I I've come to value the work that people in the blindness community do as having allowed me to do the work that I did, that if you know, nobody had developed JAWS, I would never have been able to do my job. Um, so that that's an interesting piece. And, um, but I also think that, um, yeah, having being able to talk to other people who, who go through the same stuff is incredibly important. While in the classroom environment, Barbara was able to answer questions about blindness from the children she worked with. She explains that they ask questions about how she performed everyday tasks. By receiving these open and unfiltered questions from young minds, Barbara realized that she could have the same kind of conversations with adults to help clarify the misconceptions they had surrounding blindness. It's really important to have um, lots of different kinds of role models for kids and, you know, blindness is one of them um you know just recognizing that that people you know can do things I and I you know I, a lot I, I tended to mostly talk with younger kids elementary um aged kids who in school um who would ask me you know lots of questions about how did I do things you know how do, how do I get dressed and I would say I would say to them you know you know, one night when you're putting on, you have to put on your pajamas, don't turn on any lights and just, you can do it. It's not so hard. Um, and, you know, things like that, um, how do you figure out what your, which clothes you're putting on? Well, I mean, if it's just, you know, if it feels the same, you have things, if you have the same thing in several colors, it's a little tricky and you have to figure out ways to mark them. But Otherwise, you, you sort of know what it feels like. You know which, which um, sweatshirt is soft and cozy and which one is a little stiffer. And you know, you know which pants feel like which. And, you know, just try it. Just try getting, you know, going into your dresser in the dark. Um, those kinds of things. I mean, I've had kids say to me, well, how do you cook? And I would say, well, the same as anybody else. I just, you know, I... I, I use I, I'm careful about using a knife and I can feel where things are and I know what they are and and you know so a lot of questions about how do you do things she realized that this advocacy work helped to demystify how a blind person lives and works through this work she strives to show that with a little extra planning and adaptation a blind person can accomplish any task that their sighted peers are able to do. It's a little bit hard to sort out what I needed to do um, to learn new new skills, not related to my disability, 
and what's related to to being blind. I mean, it's it just it's it's sort of wrapped up together. I think, um, you know, I think that an area that I well, I guess the two areas that I I don't know one area that I grew a lot in was around. Um, advocacy and you know sort of around advocacy around early childhood issues and um, being not um, not shy about learning to not be shy about speaking up even if it was not the if, even if I wasn't agreeing with everybody um, and I think I mean, well, maybe in terms of um, adapting. I mean, I, I think I'm, a, I'm obviously an auditory learner, and I can remember things um, pretty that I hear pretty well. Um, I guess one thing I did learn to do was take notes, even if I never looked at them. Um, sort of sh- like. Um, shut jaws up and just take notes because um and I know this was true when I was sighted and would write would take notes and you know uh by writing by longhand um it imprinted things on my brain more and if I write it down I'm more likely to remember it um I also um am I get teased a lot for remembering a lot of details. And I always joke that the reason I can remember details is that um, it's easier than having to look something up. You know, so I remember hundreds of kids' names and their parents and, you know, where I met them and what, you know, what their story was. And um, just because it's easier than, oh my God, I have to go look up who this is and what what you know what their story is and um so just you know so I think and I'm sure that's true of of lots of people of lots of people who are blind that we and I I sometimes say it's because I don't have to junk my head up with um visual images we'd like to thank Barbara Black for being here with us today thank you for tuning in to Vision Toward Success with your host David Gonzalez and our guest Barbara Black You can reach Barbara Black at barbablack413 at gmail.com, which is spelled B-A-R-B-A-R-A-B-L-A-C-K-413 at gmail.com. And now, a blindness tip from Barbara Black. I guess I would say... You never know exactly where you're going to land, so just don't worry too much about it. Um, you know, I would never have expected that I would um, have this career that I've had and be so passionate about it and become an outspoken advocate who does stuff on the state level. And um, so you just don't know. So you have to just take things I don't know I guess I would say I should be open to what comes thank you for tuning in to vision towards success 
This program has been recorded and produced by Elena Regan and David Gonzalez from the Tradeswin Audio Podcast Team in association with the Polis Center for Social and Economic Development. Funding for this program has been provided by the Libby Duvon Award from the Fielding Institute, the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind, and the Barry Savings Foundation. Additional episodes of this podcast can be found at www.polacenter.org backslash tradeswin or wherever you get your podcasts.